Shirley from the bank. The answers are no, no, and yes. No, we won't loan you money. No, we won't accept any co-signers. And yes, your account's overdrawn. I get off at 4.30. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And we are going back to season one uh, yet again for this episode. Yeah. Epi, which one are we talking about and why did you propose this episode? Right. So this is uh, season one, episode 20. The story behind this is that I'm working on the 200 a day Rockford Files files, which is our <laughs> database that we're setting a database spreadsheet that we're setting up for fans of the show and fans of our show to kind of put together notes about the different episodes, whether they're episodes of Rockford Files or episodes of 200 a day. And that's happening because we hit a we hit a funding goal on our Patreon. Yes. So by the time this episode comes out, it will have been out for some time. Um, there will be a link to it from our website, 200aday.fireside.fm, and also from our Patreon, patreon.com slash 200aday. And it's a resource for all the weird and fun things um, that listeners like about the Rockford Files, as well as the things that we like and uh, vital statistics as well. If you're if you are a... Uh accountant or a nutritionist who worries about uh, Jim Rockford's financial and uh, bodily health, it's a good one to to check out. We'll, we'll definitely be talking about his money and his food quite a bit on there. Mm -hmm. I was putting together sort of the skeleton of it, and part of that skeleton involved copying over information that already exists on the internet. And I discovered that Lee Brackett wrote an episode, uh, this episode, in fact, The Four Pound Brick. And I am, uh, I'm a big Lee Brackett fan, and we'll probably talk more about her and what she's done in the second half of this episode, but I was over the moon. Uh, I was super excited about this. I was not immediately familiar with Lee Brackett, but uh, you were like, <laughs> she's the one who wrote the original treatment for Empire Strikes Back, the one where Vader is in a castle. And <laughs> I was like, oh, tell me more. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about her in the second half. And I'd also just want to put the standard apology out. I don't know how her name is actually pronounced. I'm sure it's Lee Brackett, but it could be anything else. Yeah, uh, so Lee Brackett, this is the only episode of The Rockford Files that she wrote. Um, she's more well-known as a screenwriter uh, for some feature films, uh, including some great westerns mm -hmm. uh rio bravo and el dorado and also some great noirs the big sleep and the long goodbye uh so we'll we'll go a little more into how that all kind of combines for us as an interesting case study i guess of yeah the influences on the rockford files i don't know how intentional any of this is because i'm sure it's just a part of the writing for tv beat you would just end up writing for whatever shows or you have a script and take it around to shows but uh yeah it's an interesting cross-section of all of those plus her fiction work which is what epi was very excited about yeah yeah uh this episode was directed by lawrence doheny uh again apologies if we've <laughs> if, if we do not pronounce his name correctly we still don't know we've still never heard it heard it pronounced uh in front of us he's a he's a all over the rockford files the first couple seasons in particular and this is the fourth of his directorial episodes that we've talked about joining some of our pantheon i would say of favorite episodes including the farnsworth stratagem and chicken little is a little chicken um he also directed pastoria prime pick which i think we liked a little more than some other uh th than the consensus on it right. um 
this episode, while the plot is actually very straightforward, a lot of the directorial choices are very thematic and pull it together, I th- I'd say. Yeah. I've come to, to really, really get excited when I see his name um, in the credits because like, all right, you're someone who really knows what he's doing. And uh, yeah, and Juanita Bartlett had a hand in, in script um, doctoring as well. So yeah, it's like a dream team. It's, a, it's kind of funny because we have this this little bit of a dream team here. This episode is in between two other episodes that we've talked about. Charlie Harris at large, which was good, but a bit of a weird one. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It doesn't fit into the Rockford Files formula as well as some others. And just by accident, which is one of our least favorite episodes that we yeah. uh, have talked about. So this little cluster of episodes right at the end of season one is an interesting. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride in terms of quality. They're still kind of figuring out the show, I think, still figuring out the creative staff. And I would say that at this point, we are on board with the idea that the show really hits its stride in the second season. Yeah. And this is kind of one of the one of one of the episodes that shows the promise of the second season. One of the ways the show sort of plugs into that is that it's a really good episode just to showcase the relationships that Jim has with his father, with Becker, with Angel, and and Deal. Yeah. In in that way, I feel like the show has its stride here. These are how these characters view each other. This is how these characters mm-hmm. fit together. And, and uh, I think it's ready at that point. The, the characters all fit really well, I think, in terms of what makes for a memorable Rockford plot. You know, we don't have the wacky stuff that um, Cannell or David Chase would do. We don't have the very plugged into what's happening in society kind of angle stuff that we see yeah. from like when Juanita Bartlett starts writing or when we get uh, Meta Rosenberg really having her hands on it, uh, creatively at least. And also, in comparison to those those two I just mentioned, this one has most of that supporting cast, and thus it feels more like a Rockford episode, and those other ones have less of the supporting cast and feel more like generic detective yeah. stories. It's an interesting contrast with the, those other two episodes. But speaking of the generic detective story, let's get into the preview montage. Oh, the preview montage. Which I think is very straightforward. Yeah, it's straightforward. It, it, in fact, it's it, it sets up all the beats you want in a Rockford Files episode. How is Jim going to get hired? How is his money going to be in question? How is he going to try and not get the job? Uh, also, we get a great look at, I'm going to say, artistically faced goons in this episode. I feel like... They are memorable goons. If nothing else, this episode has... Uh, Facial features on these guys. Like, you see this guy's face and you know immediately that his whole job in this episode is to do physical harm to Jim. And it's just by looking at his face. We also have a good recording (sighs) machine message uh, that you just heard that is right up your alley, I would say. Oh, so good. Uh, Financial troubles. But of course, (laughs) she she wants to take Jim out. Yeah. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we have nine of them to thank. Thank you to Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast. It's the McLaughlin Group for Nerds, RadioVsTheMartians.com. Thanks, Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast found at MisdirectedMark.com. Lowell Francis with an award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thank you Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Victor DeSanto, and Bill Anderson. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very generous support. Find him on Twitter 
at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 a day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. All right, so we start this episode at a funeral. There's a nice pan into the mourners as the uh, priest is giving the, the the service. We see a bunch of cops in uniform. Mm-hmm. So we see it's a, a, a cop funeral. This whole beginning sequence has no music. Yeah. There's no background music. There's no score. Uh, so it sets a very somber tone right at the beginning. Rocky, uh, Jim's father, is also in attendance at this funeral. Again, this whole beginning sequence is about Rocky. We don't see Jim for a couple scenes. The deceased is uh, David Philip Banning. He'll be referred to as Dave or Banning as we go forward. And Rocky apparently knows his mother. He's there to support her in her time of grief. And we get a nice kind of sequence of close-ups on people that are going to be important people to the plot, giving us the visual cue of like, here are the four important people. The mother, um, her name's Kate, Kate Banning. She is quite the character. (laughs) Yes. She's played by Edith Atwater, who was in a million TV shows <laughs> from the, the 50s onwards. Um, and she has a very, what what strikes me as a very theatrical kind of presence. Like, she seems like she came from the world of the stage. Yeah. The way that she speaks is very, I don't know, actorly. The character is very well-possessed, right? Like, she mm-hmm. owns the room when she's in it, which I think is part of that stage sort of thing like if you don't have a camera up in your face but you have to attract the whole audience you know how to stand to hold the whole audience and she mm-hmm. uh as we'll see throughout this she makes a for a great headstrong character and she's got she's very well written too i, I mean i don't want to spend my whole time talking about how much i love the writing here but i love the writing here her dialogue feels more like a hollywood noir film yeah yeah while the rest of the episode is a little more kind of normal everyday dialogue yeah that, that feels like how it is in, in rockford where it's very lived in and, and everything oh, absolutely because you've got like rocky being a supportive friend which we see a lot in the show and it's one of my great mm-hmm. my favorite features of of rocky is that he's got all these old friends you could see why they're friends with him he's he's Mm-hmm. He's a good guy to them. Uh, and so he's Rocky and he's talking like Rocky. And then she has these sort of like ponderous meditations on existence, <laughs> right? Like there's this one line, I'm, I'm sure you wrote it down too. I think graves should be a little bit untidy. Like lives are. Yeah, she she feels of another time. Yeah, she has this golden age Hollywood yeah. feeling to her, which I, I don't know how well that translates to people who aren't fans of those films, which I am, so I liked it. I can yeah. see how it would stand out as being weird if you're not familiar with that kind of acting and that kind of line delivery. Mm-hmm. She delivers that great line about, I think graves ought to be a little untidy like lives are. Again, just seems to come straight out of like Sunset Boulevard or Double Indemnity or yeah. like, you know, anything like that. Anyway, we also, as as Rocky is walking with her back to the, the car to go back to the house, uh, Lieutenant Deal, yes. a good friend and Jim's adversary in the department, Lieutenant Deal, with an astonishingly great mustache. Yeah. I can't recall if he has it in every episode. I don't think so. I don't know, I think actually. it comes and goes. We'll have to do a review of the Deal mustache. <laughs> We could put it in the Rockford Files files. He comes up with a, uh, just to to offer condolences on behalf of the department. The camera shows us and then Deal points out Sergeant Wilson, who was Mm -hmm. Dave's partner. Importantly, Wilson keeps his distance. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So we have a long, slow take of the car pulling out and going down the street, adding a little gravity, I think, to the whole intro scene. So that's what I'm talking about with some of the directorial choices. Like the, the beginning of the episode has lots of these longer, slower looking at the screen while things happen. Yeah. Things that, again, are a little noirish to me. But we go to the Wilson house. Kate, the mom, and another woman who we saw at the funeral. We don't learn their relationship till later, but she was Dave's fiance. Are having a, a conversation about how they're going to have to learn to live without him. Kind of showing that there's some warmth there. Like they're yeah. on the same wavelength. And Rocky is there as well, still, you know, giving, giving uh, comfort and accompanying her back to the house. But Mrs. Wilson does not think that Dave's death was an accident. He took care of that car. It was just in the shop recently. The brakes were totally fine. We never hear the details of the accident. This is all we have to know that something happened with his car. The brakes didn't work and he ended up in a crash or something like that. But in addition to that, he had been acting strange for two weeks before he died. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Wilson is convinced that someone killed him. So Rocky is kind of here as the voice of reason being like, he was a cop, they're they're investigating. Right. If there was any chance of anything, they wouldn't let it go. The, the police look after their own, but she's convinced. She wants to find out the truth, but uh, she can't afford professional help. And uh, <laughs> this is where Rocky offers his son Jimmy to do it for free. Oh my God. So Rocky is in a, in a lie right now. He's, he's in mm -hmm. a web of lies. Rocky spins a web of lies, I would say. Yeah, he wants to be able to help. And he knows that Jim has the skills to help. And I think Rocky would normally take pride in having Jim help. But he's clearly told her in the past that Jim drives a truck. Mm -hmm. And I almost forgot about this, but in like the early seasons, there's always some sort of tension between Rocky and what Jim does for a living. Mainly that tension is about how dangerous it is for Jim, but there's mm -hmm. a little bit of shame there. Aside from the fact that Rocky has great pride in trucks and trucking and would dearly <laughs> love for Jim to have fallen, followed in his footsteps, I think that there's something else there. I think he, he thinks that Jim's... Yeah, he's a little ashamed of what Jim does. Yeah. And this comes back in this episode, actually. But yeah, so he says that, well, he has this PI thing as a sideline. Yeah. <laughs> as he says, when he's not pushing a rig, and uh, uh, Miss Wilson, Kate, says, well, would he do it for free? And he says, of course, he's my son. All I got to do is ask. And we know that he is wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, we know specifically from the opening montage that he is wrong, mm -hmm. which is great. So we go to Rockford's trailer where he is defrosting his right. theoretically frost proof. He says refrigerator. He's defrosting the freezer. Yeah. And he, he's telling Rocky how the warranty just ran out. And that's always the way these things always break just as the warranty runs out. So he thinks he's just going to get a new one. I like this little moment because it both is a very Jim Rockford's life thing. Yeah. But also, Rocky asks him, how is he going to afford a new refrigerator? And he says that, well, he can he can swing the down payment. Yeah. So as per usual, he could use some money. What I like about this problem, I mean, there, there's the ongoing joke that Jim can't get no luck, right? Like there's, there's definitely yeah. that. But also, this is an absolute understandable 
people have this problem. Uh, yeah. And this is a very human, down-to-life thing to happen. It's not so much that Jim's life is falling apart. It's just that things fall apart. Yeah, it's a relatable issue. Yeah, and you're just, you're going to have to deal with them at some point or another. And we see Jim do that all the time to kind of give you this feeling of treading water that is mm -hmm. life. That is the untidiness of life that should be reflected in the graves. Huh? It's all coming back. That's good. Well, uh, Rocky gently introduces this concept. <laughs> Kate being convinced that uh, her son's death was not an accident. Jim met her once and met him once. Yeah. But doesn't really consider them friends. While Rocky's like, it would be like you're doing, I, I forget the quote, but um, it's like you're doing someone very close to you a favor. Right. <laughs> Jim's not having it. No, he's like, so she's my client. And Rocky says, no, because she can't pay you. Oh, so you're my client. Well, you're doing something good for someone close to you. Jim does not want anything to do with this. As I think he clearly sees the destiny before him. I was going to say, this is also like a very relatable thing. If you have a skill or a talent, you know, this is, this is the thing where presumably if you go to med school and you become a doctor, every party is going to have someone say, oh, I've got this mm -hmm. pain or I've got this, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, to some extent you want to be helpful, but you, you can't give away your profession for free all the time. Right. So two things. One, I have a friend who's an oncologist and his thing is whenever anyone asks him for medical advice, he's like, look, that sounds like cancer to me because all I do all day long is look at cancer. Every symptom, all I can say is it looks like cancer to me and that stops people asking. <laughs> But yeah, number two, this is definitely a, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a gig economy yeah. problem. Rocky's trying to talk Jim into doing it for free. And Jim's like, look, when you were pushing a rig, did you ever do any long hauling for nothing? And Rocky's like, well, that's different. <laughs> and Jim just looks at him dead in the eyes like, no, it isn't. Because that's the thing, right? Yeah, like absolutely. Your work has value, whether you are a PI or a long haul trucker or a writer, or an artist, or a plumber. Like, if you're going to do work, someone should pay you for it. <laughs> That's how capitalism works. As a side note, I just saw a little um, interview with a, uh, oh, not an economist, I think he's an anthropologist. But anyways, the point is, he says, the more intrinsic value we see in somebody's work, the less we feel they should be rewarded for it, right? So if mm. you see somebody mm -hmm. who is um, just driving a truck, we're like, oh, yeah, well, he's working hard all day or whatever. But if you see someone who is a teacher or an artist or something that we think they get something out of it, then we think that they're greedy. And this has been used by politicians you know, if you mm -hmm. wanted to fund a school, you don't attack the administration of the school because we look at the administration. We don't think there's an intrinsic value there. You attack the teachers. They don't need to be paid because right. they are getting so much self-actualization out of yeah. the value they're providing to society. And this is, I mean, clearly that's bullshit, but it works. Like, it <laughs> really works when you want to motivate at least the American public. Uh, mm -hmm. That's how you do it. And it's horrible. And we're seeing this happen, I don't think, as a commentary on that, but I definitely felt that commentary. This conversation resonates strongly with me. Yeah. But how, how it ends up going is that Rocky gets frustrated and just says, fine, I'll, I'll hire you. I'll be your client. <laughs> and you'll have to do what I say for once. Once Rocky says that he'll hire him, that's when Rockford's like, look, I can't take your money. Right. 
<laughs> like, then we go back to the family yeah. relationship. But Rocky is insistent. Uh, he will pay Rockford. And Rockford has this great look of resignation on his face <laughs> as he allows his father to hire him for his rate. $200 a day plus expenses. Yeah, I love that he just knows it and angrily shouts it at him. Uh, going to the next scene, Jim and Rocky driving back to Kate's house, we get our first music. So this whole, that whole opening sequence, none of that had, had any music or score, but we start getting the, the harmonica coming back in. Yeah. The Rockfords pull up, go into the house, and we get a shot of the two amazing gorillas oh, from the preview montage so good. watching them from another car. There's the blonde one who looks like he's wearing a rubber mask yeah and there's the one whose face looks like a potato <laughs> those, are, those are our gorillas so the blonde is william watson so go to his imdb when you get a chance folks because <laughs> yeah this guy's got a face you want to pay his character's name is ross which we hear eventually but uh yeah you'll recognize his face if you've seen him in any of these 60s and 70s TV shows and some westerns and stuff. Uh, and the other guy, that's John Quaid yeah, John, is the other one. Yeah. Oh, he was in Werewolf. I forgot about that show. Uh, he's the one whose face looks like a potato. Yeah, they're both wonderful. Later seasons, I think, up the ante in terms of like the plots and stuff like that. But I feel like these first couple seasons really do the great goons. Yeah. They start to get a little more generic towards the end of the run. But man, these two are great. Um, anyway, so uh, we, we just see them and then we go into the house so we know that rockford and rocky are being watched talking to kate jim plays along with rocky's story about <laughs> you know having downtime on his long haul trucking so he just does this to keep busy lots of good hamming it up in this scene with every time a new lie is revealed you can tell yeah he raises eyebrows he gives a side eye it's all good stuff i'm curious what you think about this but my assumption here is that rocky didn't warn him about anything mm -hmm. and uh just tried to cover as it happens because i think rocky is not an accomplished liar yeah and doesn't know how to deal with this that's how I read it, that Jim was just rolling with Yeah. Because she brings up, it's so nice that you followed your father's footsteps and became a trucker. <laughs> a trucker. Like how Dave's father wanted him to, mm -hmm. but he went to the military instead. Did two stints, I guess, two tours or something yeah. as a Marine, I think she says, and then went to the cops. So we get a little bit of backstory about him. He's an old rookie. He didn't start with the cops till 30, which actually is, is a little relevant later. But she's basically reiterating her, her conviction that it wasn't an accident. And she also says like, oh, it's so, it's so nice of you to take this on when I can't pay you. <laughs> well, I like to stay busy. Significant look at Rocky. Uh, they go back out to the car and we have just a short conversation that's kind of the heart of what we were talking about earlier about how Rocky's a little ashamed yeah. of what he does. Like Jim's like, why do you tell people that I'm a trucker? And Rocky's line about it is that, well, people don't really understand <laughs> the PI business. So it's just easier if I tell them that you're a trucker. Jim asks him, well, do you understand? And we get like a full face shot of Rocky just being like, no, not really. <laughs> this is something that I've experienced with, you know, some family members that I'm not in close touch with or anything like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a game designer and I'm a publisher and 
this, that, and the other thing. You can tell when people know what, like, have mm-hmm. some framework for knowing what that entails, or when they don't. And when they don't, it's kind of like, I'm basically a graphic designer, <laughs> which isn't really accurate, but that's an easier conversation to have. Yeah. Dear listener, I can attest to this, having attended Nathan's wedding recently and been <laughs> part of the table that are referred to by several relatives as, so you're the gaming friends. <laughs> It's just how it, it's how it worked out. Yeah, no, I, I run into the same thing. It wasn't, I think I've, I've told you this story, but it wasn't until I published uh, What is a Role-Playing Game that my parents mm-hmm. actually had any clue what, what it was I did. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's, if you have a job uh, that your parents don't quite understand, uh, they take liberties with, with what you do and <laughs> in, in explaining it. Which is totally understandable. And in this scene, I think we kind of see Rockford chiding him a little bit about it. Yeah. Just because you don't understand what I do doesn't mean you need to make up stories about what I right. do. That's where, like, the shame part seems to come in. Anyway, like you were saying at the beginning, another of the elements that just makes this a, a very strong character episode. So Dave was a was a cop, so Jim goes to the police station to talk to Dennis, his friend at the station, Dennis Becker. And he sends his dad, I think, a, in a little bit of retaliation to take the bus home. Yeah. And he says if he does doesn't have the money for it, he'll advance it to him and include it on the expense report. <laughs> and Rocky doesn't want anything expensed unless he can see it first. Right. I'm really enjoying that they're going forward with this ostensibly a fiction. At this point, it seems that Rocky is treating it far more real than Jim is. This this expense report yes. and the money, right? Like Rocky is like, I'm doing this. This is happening. So I'm treating it like a serious thing where Jim is clearly using it as a way to... Yeah, he's needling him. With yeah, it. yeah. I think it's safe to say that Jim does not necessarily expect to get yeah. the money out of this. <laughs> So at the end of this little scene, we also see the gorillas still in the car, still watching them, and they take down Rockford's license plate number. Backwards. Which is weird. Yes. It's just a goof, but it's yeah, it's funny because it's right there in front of you as an audience. We go into the station where Jim is talking to Dennis. Yes. Dennis is yes. eating a ham and cheese sandwich and complaining about it. He can't. It's sitting in his stomach and he can't even wash it down because the coffee's so bad. Dennis does not seem to eat very healthily. No. Uh, he's super happy to see Jim, though. So, again, production-wise, this is between two episodes that don't have Dennis in them. Yeah. That have that, the other character, Tom. Oh, right. Yeah. So, who knows if this was a, like, the actors literally hadn't had a chance to do their shtick for a while. Right. Because Dennis is 100% in. Oh, so good. On his scenes. Yeah. Aside from maybe the Farnsworth stratagem. This might be my favorite Dennis incarnation. Yeah, he just seems so gleeful. Yeah. Like, he's not so as beaten down <laughs> as he is in other episodes. Yeah. But he's still really giving giving it to Rockford, needling him. It's good. But yeah, so he's saying, look, if there's anything wrong with his death, the whole department would be on it. Right. Jim's like, look, I know that, but I need to look into it. I'm looking into it for his mother. What is it? He says that the LAPD operates without fear or favor. Yeah. But we spend half of our time in cold sweats and every case file or every crime that comes across. But if the victim is a cop, you got to be sure that we're going to dig into it. Right. Uh, So it's it's a great line. Dennis is amazed that Rocky hired him. (laughs) And does not think he wants to be there when he tries to collect yes. on the bill because oh. he doesn't think he's going to get a cent out of Rocky. Oh, it's so good because he's like, are you saying that Rocky's cheap? <laughs> and Dennis is like, I am absolutely <laughs> saying that Rocky is cheap. 
So that seems to be a dead end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jim goes to talk to Dave's fiance, uh, who I don't think we ever get her name, but it looks like she works in a flower shop or something like that. Laura Smith. She is credited, but I'm not sure right. if they ever speak her name. So she also thinks that her, you know, almost mother-in-law, that Kate, is overreacting. Right. And that there isn't anything wrong, both because she is a little more on the side of the cops would not let it go, like would not say it was an accident if they didn't really think it was an accident. But she also has a different, I guess, grieving process than, than Dave's mother. She basically just wants to, like, bury him and move on. Right. Yeah. This is my life now. I need to move on with my life. While his mother is more like, I need to know what happened. And Jim brings her around by pointing out that if the fiance, if Laura helped Jim get any information to bring back to Kate, the mom, then that would help the mom to move along. And, and Laura decides to go along with this because she's a decent human being. Right. And as we saw in the first in the first scene, essentially, her and Kate have a good relationship. She wants her to, to have closure. And I think that this is kind of an important choice with this because we you were talking about earlier about the, you know, it's kind of a straightforward plot. And one of the things that helps that plot being straightforward is the elimination of suspects. Mm-hmm. If this is a murder mystery, Laura is a suspect by the nature of her relationship to the deceased. Right. Uh, and this scene, I think, swiftly puts that to rest for the audience. Don't worry about this. This isn't a red herring. This isn't. Mm-hmm. And we can point towards where, where we're actually going here. So even though she wants to just move on, she does, in fact, have some critical information for Rockford. Um, she confirms that Dave was jumpy for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks before he died. And she says that they had uh, a fight a couple days beforehand, which is unusual. It was because he took a phone call. That he tried to keep secret from her, which was also unusual. Uh, they didn't have any secrets from each other. Uh, but then there was this phone call. He went in the other room to take it, which was weird. So she went to, to listen. He sounded upset and frightened and said that he would meet whoever it was at the usual place, which he then very, very thoughtfully detailed, <laughs> apparently. Section C and D, the right aisle of the Greek theater. This is, okay, <laughs> let's talk about this, because this, this <laughs> I think, is a shaky moment in the episode, right? It's a lot of convenient things to remember right. and have a conversation about. Exactly, and if, when we get to the end of this episode, we'll talk about it, because I think that there's stuff at the end that kind of puts this in a different light. But I, I think the part where this feels the shakiest to me is that she has all this information, and she thinks that Kate's suspicions are bogus yeah and and so getting from like oh it was just an accident we just need to move on to here in a one-two beat was a little too swift for me that is sure like, if i'm gonna be yeah. critical about any part of this episode and i'm gonna be this will be the only part that i'm critical about <laughs> <laughs> it, it is definitely just narrative convenience like what is the easiest way to get this information to Rockford, have this conversation. I think it is countered a little bit by her being so like, I need to move on. I think she was presented in this scene as someone who, as soon as she learned that he, that he was dead, was like, okay, that door is closed. Right. And doesn't want to revisit it. So maybe is the kind of person that's like, I'm going to ignore these things that would trouble someone else. But we just don't see enough of her for that to really be a strong character thesis. The other bit here, and I'm, we're just going to, spoilers, I feel that the, the amount of information she has 
probably makes sense because she's probably related this to the cops already. So okay. following it, I'm guessing the cops have this information that they interviewed her at one point. She told them this stuff. And so by the reiteration of it, she probably, she's had to remember it before this scene. So she's not, mm. you know, just trying to recall it. She's already recalled it. It's been recorded somewhere uh, because of what we'll learn later about the cops. Dun, dun, dun. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a good point. But that's also not telegraphed, no. right? Like, that's not really... No, this is me reading into it. Well, I think we we swiftly move on from here once we have that information to Jim Rockford going to this Greek theater, which apparently was an old amphitheater that has since been, been torn down. But anyway, it's a cool location yeah. for sure. Uh, going to section C and D and looking around. And so he finds a bunch of cigarette butts on the ground, implying that people were standing there smoking for a long time. And he finds... A, a bullet, a cartridge, a undischarged bullet in the in the crack of a seat. Mm-hmm. I wrote down shell casing because I just don't know anything about guns <laughs> and assumed. But we learned in the next scene that it is, in fact, a full cartridge. Yes. Rockford goes back to his trailer. Uh, Rocky is waiting there for him to come back. He has eaten Rockford's steak. <laughs> Such a gandy move. Really, when you think about it. They have a whole back and forth about how there was no sign on it and he didn't want it to go bad. And Rockford is like, well, it wasn't going to go bad before I got back for dinner. (laughs) Next time I'm going to monogram it. And Rocky goes, ha ha. And he has this big look of glee on his face. It's like, ah, we have the same initials. (laughs) Waka, waka, waka. They're just kind of hamming it up and it is, it's, it's great. Yeah, it pays. Of course, Rocky ate Jim's steak while he was waiting. (laughs) Of course he did. But Rockford carefully empties the cartridge and weighs the powder because, as he explains to Rocky, the police use a light load so that the bullets don't go too far and hit, I guess, bystanders and and whatnot. Uh, So there's less powder in them than in a typical bullet that you just buy at an ammo store, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how guns work, obviously. Or even if Um, this is a true fact. Uh, but yes, but this is a very detective-y kind of little moment where he pulls out a scale and he opens this bullet and pours it out and measures it. And sure enough, there is a light load in that cartridge. So, you know, that, that puts a cop there. And, uh, why would a cop be going and meeting people at this out of the way location and yada, yada. So Rocky is like, well, are you trying to say that Dave was crooked and that he was on the take? And Jim, just in a couple sentences, has this great little thesis statement about how he works, which is when you're driving a truck, you know the destination. Right. But what I do, I never know the des- destination. I just need to find out each thing. Yeah. He's not forming any conclusions yet, but it could be. Right. And uh, Rocky very clearly does not want that to be the case. Yeah, he's got a great line about, I'm not, yeah, it ain't what I'm paying you to hear. <laughs> but Rockford says that he is going to stake out that area. That's the only lead he has. And Rocky gets uh, head up about paying him to go on this stakeout. That's not going to have any result. It's going to be paying him straight time till the year 2000 and you still won't find anything out. And that he'll do it himself. Rockford, however, very cleverly, never told him where this this stakeout location was. (laughs) I do like the distant year 2000. Mm Mm-hmm. I also like, I feel like Rocky doesn't understand what 200 a day means. Right, yeah. <laughs> He's not paying him by the hour. He already worked this day, but anyway. The, the money, the back and forth money stuff between them is, is golden. Like this whole episode throughout, and, and there, there's a nice point at the very end we'll get to, but like this is just, I love all of it. So uh, Rockford stakes it out, and um, in, in another nice like 
directorial choice. Like, there's a lot of time where we see him settled in and waiting, and the music is kind of going with him as he's thinking about it. And, you know, it's not all back-to-back action in this one. There's a lot of these kind of slower lead-ins and lead-outs. But he sees two men in suits come up to the spot that had the cigarettes. He has a little camera, and he's taking pictures, and uh, someone in a cop uniform comes up to talk to them. They hand him an envelope, and Rockford takes pictures of this whole thing. In a really great effect, the camera is showing us what Rockford's seeing, and then we see it through the camera, and then he takes a picture, and we see the black and white as if the picture was taken, but those are blurry because he's so far away. So we see the clear picture that Rockford's seeing, and then that immediately goes to the freeze frame black and white fuzzy picture from the camera. And it's just a great device that keeps it all moving very fluidly, but shows us that, sure, he's taking these pictures, but they're not really going to be great. I made a note of that, too. I thought that was its such a great way to just tell the audience that this isn't going to help mm-hmm. them without telling the audience, you know? Yeah, its a, it, it really uses the visual media yeah. really well. Uh, we go from there to another good moment. Which is Rockford talking to Angel in a bar that, as Angel says, has the best chili in town. Watch the episode for this guy they opened the scene on. He has nothing to do with anything. He's just uh, another great face. You expect him to be Mm -hmm. one of the the gorillas, one of the goons, but he's not. And his reaction to the chili when he gets it is priceless. So Angel's trying to steal silverware. (laughs) He has a, a relative's wedding coming up. A waiter comes up to take their order. This waiter is our favorite background, at least one of my favorite character actors, Bruce Tuttle. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> the guy with the mustache. We talked about him in Just Another Polish Wedding. He's in that one. And I think he's in at least one other one that we've talked about. Pastoria Prime Pick. Mm, mm-hmm. He's been in six episodes. Anyway, he comes to take their order. Rockford thinks for a moment, goes through a couple things, and just goes like, uh, you know what? I don't Nothing. <laughs> I actually don't want to order anything from this establishment. While Angel gets a beer and a bowl of chili with lots of onions. Through the rest of this conversation, his food arrives and he crumbles all the oyster crackers <laughs> onto it until there's a huge mound of them. Then the last scene is him just taking a huge bite of this extremely gross looking chili. Tells you all you need to know about Angel. Watching this scene, I had just finished my lunch and I wanted nothing more than a beer and a bowl of chili with extra onions. <laughs> There's something about chili and, and Jim Rockford. I We've seen him disgusted by chili before, which is weird because he likes hot things. Right. It's a garbage food, so you'd think he would like it. I feel like it's but right in his wheelhouse. This is a, a nod towards my universal theory of TV detectives and food, which is none of them cross over. And Columbo is the chili guy. Oh! Columbo eats chili with beans without beans he scavenges from buffets and he eats chili that is very interesting jim rockford tacos and hot dogs yeah no chili hmm hercule poirot doesn't eat garbage no he only eats very fancy tiny belgian foods i don't know if i've i've added to your theory or not but if you've ever seen foils war I have okay not. so that's another tv detective worth checking out it's a more recent one it takes place during world war ii his thing is whenever he goes somewhere to interview someone they offer him a drink and he refuses. He's, his whole thing is refusing drinks and hospitality from people in a very polite, very British way. But like, 
everyone tries to, would you like some tea? No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to do it. Not going to fall for it. You will not poison me. Maybe we'll add it to the canon. So anyway, that's my fan theory about (laughs) TV detectives and and food. Hit us back if you have any additions or thoughts on my Cliff's Notes version right there. (laughs) But anyway, not only does this scene have food, it also has money. Because Rockford offers Angel... $50 $50 to ask around about um, these two cops, about Wilson and Dave Banning. Angel says no chance because he doesn't want to have anything to do with cops. Alive, dead, yeah, straight cops, on the take, doesn't want anything to do with them. But 50 bucks is 50 bucks. After the big bite of gross looking chili, <laughs> uh, we cut to a montage of Angel and then Rockford asking around on the streets. They're not together. They've split up. And the beauty of it is how Rockford is just a man of the people. He just gets along with everyone and is personable. There's no nothing spoken. You could just see in the body language and how people are talking. And Angel, like, steals a nudie mag. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's good. The very last shot of the montage is the, the blonde gorilla the one who looks like he's wearing a rubber mask coming onto the screen to to look after rockford who just exited this the shot uh so we know that they're still being followed yeah and then the next scene is him calling an old guy (laughs) his name's maury he's sitting in an armchair and it's a call from the blonde guy his name's ross that says this this guy rockford has been asking around about banning and wilson what should they do and maury says to take him off (laughs) and hangs up the phone So Angel and Rockford are in Rockford's car, uh, giving Angel a ride home from their night of hitting the streets. And Angel says that those two guys, or that Wilson in particular, is into everything. Uh, Has a half a dozen scams, and some of them are pretty good. Uh, But that Angel won't be a witness. Don't tell anyone I told you kind of stuff. He starts telling Jimmy that he's fixed up his place real nice. And that's when Jim sees that they're being followed. (laughs) So we get a nice nighttime car chase where Jim tries to lose them through this hilly neighborhood. He can't quite lose them, so he lets them kind of come alongside on a straightaway. From the perspective of Jim's seat, we look over and we see the gorillas with a gun next to them. And that's when he spins the wheel to shoot up an embankment, like in front of a couple other cars up on top of this hill. There's no road there. Yeah, yeah. He just goes up. Off-roads it. Um, so not only has he off-roaded it in a manner where it would be very difficult to follow, it's also right in front of these other cars with people in them. So the pursuit car breaks off and the, and the goons get get out of there before anything can happen. And then we get the dramatic angel gets out of there. <laughs> so bit. during this chase... One of my favorite things about this chase, all we know is the chase has has begun. We don't know anyone has a gun or anything like that. And certainly Angel doesn't know. And he just inches down into his seat. <laughs> like, and, but, but yeah, when they get out, Rockford's looking at the car. And he says, I wonder what it did to my undercarriage. <laughs> and Angel's like, wonder what it did to mine. <laughs> Dear listener, Angel has pooped his pants. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I thought that was a weird thing to say. Watch how he leaves this scene. He waddles out. Oh, it's so good. So good. This is the second time we've seen this for for 200 a day where Angel refuses to stay in the car and just leaves, just runs and leaves Jim in the car. Was the other one the girl in the Bay City Boys Club? Might be. I'm trying to remember. There's the one where they're supposed to leave the hotel together and Angel stays behind and lets Jim go across the parking lot to get in the car. I think that's a hotel of fear. Yeah. But yeah, he waddles out of there angrily. (laughs) 
And that's our, our angel for this episode. So good, though. Yeah. It's kind of funny because in a way, he's unnecessary. Right. It's not that he knows someone in particular. And like the montage is even both of them. It's not just yeah, Angel finding yeah. out this information, but he just adds so much Rockfordness. Yeah. The fact that that character is there and he gets to have the banter with Jim and we see him doing Angel things makes it more fun to watch than if it was just Jim doing all those that stuff by himself. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Rockford and Rocky are in Jim's trailer. Rockford's making an omelet for Rocky. He keeps asking him if he wants onions, but Rocky seems to be pretty upset because he's looking through these blurry photos. Rockford is explaining that um, he saw Wilson take that bribe. And between that and all the street talk he and Angel picked up on, uh, it's a circumstantial case that Wilson's on the take. Yeah. And it seems pretty reasonable to assume then that Dave was too, and that's probably why he was killed. Rocky doesn't like hearing that. Yeah. And they get to this interesting question which I think is the most narratively interesting question in the episode, which is if Jim takes what he knows to the cops, it's going to open, open a can of worms because no one wants to hear about a dirty cop. Is that what Kate wants? Yeah. It's not about what's the right thing to do or what's the legal thing to do. The question is, Rocky, you're doing this for Kate. What do you want and what does she want? And it rests on Rocky's shoulders because Rocky is the one who hired Jim. Exactly. Like, it's not even like a weird moral thing. This is within the context of Jim's professionalism. He's got hired by someone to do a job. That someone is his boss. It just happens to be his dad. Yeah. And Rocky hymns and haws, but he comes down on the side of he wants, he says he wants the truth. So... Rockford kind of pushes again. Is this what Kate wants? Right. Do you want to do this to Kate, basically? Because we can either just end it now, just bury it, or we take it to her. Yeah. And uh, Rocky ends up deciding with a sigh that they should tell Kate what Jim has found out. Rockford goes ahead and makes his omelet with no onions. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they go to, to talk to Kate. This is where Rockford actually has the line about opening a big can of worms, etc. Kate says that she does want to go to the police. She wants yeah. Rockford to continue. She has a great statement of kind of encapsulating her character and her worldview. Because Rocky's kind of like, are you sure that's what you want and stuff? It's like, well, you both want to protect me because you're you're worried about Dave's memory. Right. But she wants to know what happened. Yeah. She's like, I love Dave and I'll love him no matter what. So that's not in question here. She doesn't care what people, how they remember him, because what matters is whether or not she loved him. And after that, the next most important thing is the truth. His memory will take care of itself. Oh, she's a great character. So Rockford takes it to Dennis, but Dennis bumps him straight to Lieutenant Deal because, as he says, we live in a structured society <laughs> and uh, Deal is Wilson's superior. So Jim is taking his photos and what he's learned on the street about Wilson to the police. And we have just a great Rockford versus Deal yeah. argument. Yeah, Watch the episode. This is a good yeah. scene. Make sure you're paying attention. As we might expect from the how the photos were already telegraphed to us visually, Deal shoots down Rockford's, quote, attempt <laughs> at photography. <laughs> and he points that out that since Rockford took the bolt apart to figure out if it was a light load, he's tampered with the evidence. So that's not admissible. Yeah. Rockford has a great line where he says he, he deals with hostile better than condescending. Yeah. And Deal's like, all right, well, let's get hostile. <laughs> Rockford's point is he's a witness. Not only does he have the picture, he saw right. yeah, yeah. Wilson take the take that bribe and he knows that Dave went to that place. So he basically wants Deal to take it to internal affairs. Deal is not only offended that Rockford would 
besmirch the memory of an officer in this way. Uh, he's also doesn't like how Rockford's a, a two-bit detective who has something out for his department. They've investigated it thoroughly, and if they say that there's nothing wrong, then there's nothing wrong. And then he ends with saying that he's going to stop Rockford. If Rockford keeps poking around, he's going to stop him cold, however he can. Which I like because, unlike many of Deal and like Chapman and other like cop authorities, where they threaten Rockford with something specific, like, I'm going to throw you in jail for obstruction of justice. Right. And so Rockford can come back with like, well, you can't actually do that because I know the law just as well as you. This is a vague threat that is also within the bounds. Like, I'll stop you. However, I can figure out how to stop you. I will find a way. And that's more threatening. In Doesn't a way. he even say, like, he says, I'll take this to roll call. Yeah, like, I'll tell all of the cops that you're yeah. trying to mess with us. It's a huge threat. It's not, Rockford, stop messing around with this. It's, Rockford, I will ruin you if you mess around with this. Rockford, you know, stalks out, goes back to meet up with Rocky at the car, who's waiting outside. And then two cops come over to talk to Rockford and basically do the the retail version of uh, <laughs> yeah. Deal's threat. We, we heard about your story or whatever. And Rockford's like, that's funny. Haven't been around here very <laughs> long. But they threatened to, to jerk his ticket uh, if he doesn't drop it. They'll be able to cash him for something, yeah. no matter what. And when they do, they're going to pull his license, right? Which, again, is a threat that can be carried out. I feel like this, this moment brings it home when they tell him to drive carefully. Yeah. You are always breaking a law at any given moment. So the mm -hmm. cops always have an excuse to do something about it. That's a problem that we as a nation mm -hmm. are really facing right now. But it, I think it's really chilling the way they brought that home with just saying, be very careful how you drive home. Um, this, of course, puts up Jim's back. Yeah. As we know, Jim Rockford does not like being leaned on and does not like being pushed off of a case. And he uh, uh, makes this explicit uh, when Rocky asks him, you know, well, you're not going to forget about it, are you? You're damned right. I'm not going to forget about it. <laughs> it's so fun that this happens so late in the episode, too, right? Yeah. This is when it transitions from being a favor and his professionalism yeah. to him being personally invested because he's not going to let these cops yeah. push him off of this thing that he knows is happening. At this point, did you think that the cops were being weirdly aggressive about it? Or did you feel like this was still within the bounds of what you would expect from, you know, the cops who don't like Rockford? I thought this was within the bounds. Okay, so I have obviously seen this episode before, but it was years ago when I saw it. So I couldn't remember how it all went down. And I did, didn't, it did not occur to me that they're out of bounds until the episode was over, at which point I thought, oh, this is the episode trying to tell us there's something mm. else going on here. Yeah. And I guess maybe in the back of my mind, I thought perhaps these two that weren't deal mm -hmm. were dirty as well. And that was That's their, kind of what I thought. Their thing. Yeah, we, I, when we get to the end, let's, we, we should talk about the cops. I think this is the moment where I was like, okay, so that's the second level of this plot, right? Like maybe these guys are dirty or there's some kind of cover up. Yeah. So the next scene uh, is Rockford in his in a rental car because uh, his car's in the shop because something did happen to the undercarriage, obviously. <laughs> but uh, Rockford in a rental car at night following who I assumed to be Wilson and we find out pretty soon is Sergeant Wilson who's in his cop uniform, but driving like a civilian mm -hmm. car, pulls over in the dark at some kind of unoccupied park area. Rockford watches with binoculars as um, another car pulls up. He gets into the back. He gets an envelope from two guys in suits, and then he goes back to his car, and Rockford follows the two guys in suits in their car. He follows them 
which I think is back to the police station. Yeah, yeah, there's a sign there. The two guys go into a door with a with a door sign that says detectives only. Yes. <laughs> there's a beat while Rockford is processing this information. And then our two gorillas surprise him and just get into the car on either side. Open the unlocked doors. Uh, and a slide in. They have a little bit of banter. Rockford says, oh, I was just thinking about taking a vacation. And the <laughs> potato-faced gorilla, who is holding a gun, says, oh, I should have thought about that earlier. I, I don't know what it is. There's something magical about when clearly somebody intends Rockford harm, and the interaction just seems so small-talky. So now we know something weird's yeah. going on, right? Like, these two guys apparently are detectives, and they just... Gave Wilson money. Our gorillas take Rockford to some barn somewhere, and they get out of the car, and Maury, the guy who right. said to, to drop him off earlier in the episode, is there. He tells one of the guys to keep an eye out for Wilson, and the potato-faced goon <laughs> hustles Rockford off. Rockford tries to be like, Maury, are you in charge here? Let's talk. And he says what I think is kind of an interesting line. You want to keep quiet, or do you want some help? Yeah, it's a good threat. So I didn't really remember how this episode resolved. And for a second, I was like, oh, wait, are these guys cops? Right, yeah. Like, is that the reveal that, like, Maury and these guys are cops? You want to keep quiet or you want some help? Like, we're going to give you help. Yeah. Like, that's kind of how I read it in the moment. I think it's just how my brain interpreted it. I don't think there's... My thing was, like... We want some help to keep quiet with my gun. It felt like a dad threat. If that makes any sense. Like, you want to quiet down back there? Or do you do I have to come down and quiet you down? Or do I have to come help? Yeah, exactly. Spoiler alert on this, uh, they are not cops. No. Uh Wilson does arrive in a police cruiser as opposed to the civilian car he was in earlier, and he asks, You guys have the hash for me? And they do. They in fact have a four pound brick. <gasps> it's the title of the episode. Wilson has the envelope of cash. I forget if they specify how much it is. Maury goes to take it, and Wilson says, what, you're not going to count it? And they have this weird standoff. Yeah. But once he takes the four-pound brick, then the blonde gorilla jumps him, grabs for the inside of his coat, and sure enough, he's wearing a wire. So that little weird standoff was like, I need you to say how much money it was for my recording equipment, yes. <laughs> I guess. So Wilson's wearing a wire. These goons figured it out and have now caught him with it. And then we cut to Deal waiting in a car and another cop saying that the line went dead and Deal ordering the, the rest of them in. Maury wants to keep Rockford and Wilson as hostages. So they grab them and uh, kind of uh, shove them into the car while everyone's kind of running around trying to figure out where the cops are going to come from. Rockford and Wilson have a little bit of conversation and Wilson says that I forget the term he uses, but he's like, it's hard to be like on the take. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that about Dave until after it happened. And he seems genuinely bummed out. Yeah. The cops surround the barn. They head out the back and manage to break through the cop cordon or whatever. But then in the pursuit, they get pushed down in an embankment. And once the car kind of stalls in some like it was like a drainage ditch, mm -hmm. the car hits it and stalls. Wilson and Rockford are able to jump the guys with the guns and get control of them while all of the cop cars swarm in <laughs> from every side and uh, our bad guys are brought to justice. Yay! Yeah, so good guys win and we go back to Rockford's trailer to get the, the button on our episode. Rockford, Rocky, Dennis, and Kate <laughs> are all hanging out, sharing some, some laughs. So Dennis explains, I think, for everyone, for the viewer, as well as for Kate, yeah. that uh, Wilson had been on the pad right, yeah. for a while, but that Dave, after he became Wilson's partner, discovered 
that he was he was crooked and reported it to internal affairs so then internal affairs had him go undercover to start taking bribes and stuff as well and this moment is a good moment because an early theory that rocky had thrown out to protect dave's memory was Mm -hmm. that dave was undercover so when dennis mentions undercover rocky's like see (laughs) i can do your job maury found out that he was going to going to snitch uh, and so, so Maury and those gorillas are the ones who murdered him. Wilson didn't know about it until after. And so once Dave died, then internal affairs basically flipped Wilson to being an informant with the same goons that he'd been, you know, taking bribes from. And that's the story. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the cops here. My question for you is Dennis. Mm-hmm. Does Dennis know all along? Rockford says that, you know, you really gave me a good line back there or something like that. And Dennis says that internal affairs have thrown a blanket over everything. Right. So I think the implication is that Dennis either knew that there was something, Mm -hmm. knew that there was some kind of operation, or maybe knew the details. But once Rockford starts sniffing around, that made them everyone nervous. So they locked it down. And that's why he didn't say anything and why Deal was so aggressive about trying to get him off his back because because my question in my mind was did dennis know from when we first see dennis Mm -hmm. there's something about rockford saying that dennis gave him kind of the runaround whatever sounded like that might have been something that happened after the arrests i thought that was referring to uh when dennis just bounced him directly to deal which is i guess the second time that he runs into dennis right yeah because in that he's kind of like look it's out of my hands you have to talk to deal he doesn't give any any opening for rockford to try and get anything out of him yeah might be reading into that a little bit but everyone keeps saying if there really was a problem wouldn't we as cops have investigated more thoroughly like that party line feels like an attempt to just shake off civilian attempts to investigate from the get-go i don't think there's any text either way about it but i I can see a situation where internal affairs did the investigation right and they already knew you know so there's a smaller cadre within the police that's like we investigated and it was an accident so the rest of the police aren't going to keep poking at it there's that or there's the this is an active thing we can't let the civilian authorities know about it because it's going to get back to the people we're trying to sting those are both plausible i don't know if there's really text for either i just think it, it that's an interesting thing to keep in mind if you for some reason have listened to us before you've seen the episode or if you ever go back to watch the episode to just see how the cops are reacting to things and to see if there's a moment when people know right because there definitely is a moment when rockford talks to deal the first time deal knows deals yeah. definitely shoving him off as hard as he can because it's not that he hates Rockford. He hates Rockford, but he he doesn't want to ruin what they got going. And so I guess the implication with that is also that those two cops who came to see him so soon after he went to see Deal, they couldn't have heard from Deal, right? right? It was too quick. There was already this word out that Rockford was poking around. Next time he shows up, go scare him off. Something like that. In one way, it doesn't really matter because the outcome of the story is kind of the same either way. In another way, it's kind of part of why this one feels so straightforward. It's just kind of fact, 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 backfill to explain a couple of the facts. That's the story. All right, but let's get to the most important part of this episode. Which is how they handle Rockford's bill. Oh, yes. 
first of all, the scene opens with Rockford and Rocky arguing over expenses. Yes. Rocky's like, no, you should put all these things, like you should put the car repair <laughs> and the car rental on my bill. Rockford's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm the one who knows what should be expensed. And also, I know you're not going to pay for this anyway. So. Yeah, it's the rabbit season, duck season gag. And it's so good. <laughs> and then Rocky and Kate argue about the bill <laughs> because Kate's like, you did this for me and I pay my debts. Give me the bill. Right. And Rocky's like, no, I hired him. I'll pay him. Give me the bill. And so Dennis gets to be the voice of reason and come in and be like, hey, I have a great idea. Why don't you split the bill? Ever the voice of reason. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, what a good idea. So fine. They're going to split the bill. And then apparently Rocky and Kate are going to go get dinner. They leave. Dennis and, and Jim have some banter. And then we hear in sequence each of them making an excuse to come back into the trailer and tell Rockford why they can't actually pay him right now. <laughs> Kate uh, is a little short on cash. It's going to take her a little while. Jim says, perfectly okay. That's fine. We even get a moment with Dennis where, you know, Dennis is like, ha ha. And Jim mm -hmm. is like, well, I knew she wasn't good. That wasn't in question here. <laughs> and then Rocky comes in and he, he spent a little more on that fishing trip than he thought. So he should go ahead and just put that bill into accounts receivable. <laughs> and then he leaves. Rockford's holding the bill. And we just see him slowly crumple it up in his hand, throw it in the wastebasket. And then Jim and Dennis laugh and laugh. It was disturbing to see Dennis laugh, by the way. <laughs> well, it's paying out on earlier where he's like, I need to be yeah, there to see so good. you try to get the money out of, out of Rocky. And I thought for a moment that they were going to freeze frame on Dennis laughing instead of Jim. But we got Jim at the end. And that's the end of The Four Pound Brick. A very straightforward story uh, with wonderful character interactions. Mm -hmm. I definitely would recommend this episode and I would recommend it. I would say watch some Rockford, then watch this episode so that you know mm -hmm. those characters and can just enjoy those characters. They just seem like they're having a good time yeah. in this episode. And it's it's fun to watch. I'd say this is a good blend of our, our Rockford genres. Yeah. Um, it is both a Rockford is hired, Rockford gets a case, and also a Rockford's friend is in trouble. Yeah. Kind of like a 50-50. The elements of both are present in a way that don't really interfere with each other, and then pays out with the character moments of him not actually getting paid. <laughs> and also, his friends aren't really in trouble in the same way. Like, no one's under threat. Yeah. This is all about finding out what happened to the the son. So in a way, this one also has very low stakes. It's not like super comedic. It's not like a real laugh out loud episode, but it is kind of a, a it's an easy yeah. watch. It's late in season one, but well-rounded season one episode. Agreed. So I was about to ask, how did you feel your expectations based on the writing credit? Right. How were those fulfilled or not? But I think we're going to go ahead and talk about that in depth in the second half. Sounds good to me. So, do you have anything else about the four-pound brick? Uh, no, except that I wonder if the title is about the hash or about Angel's undercarriage. <laughs> <laughs> that answer we may never know. <laughs> but we'll be back after the break to uh, talk more about Lee Brackett and all of the many genre influences, uh, perhaps, on the Rockford Files in general, uh, if not this episode in particular. Excellent. 
While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Linking Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 a Day. This is the second part of our episode where we discuss some of the lessons that we may have learned uh, watching this show and how we may apply that to our own fiction. But, special episode, this one's going to be about Lee Brackett. We'll get into the lessons in a little bit, but let's talk about Lee Brackett here. Yeah, so we touched on some of her writing credits for films and stuff, but I was not aware of this until you brought it up when we were talking about doing this episode. Uh, but she also is a planet and and sorcery or sword and planet yes. subgenre uh, author. Right. So she is uh, like fairly pulpy genre fiction author. And uh... so you'd read some of her material before seeing like, oh, she wrote this for the Rockford right. Files. Like you recognize the name on site. Yes. So uh, the, the material that I'm most familiar with of hers is her second Eric John Stark series. These stories are about a man who was raised on some alien planet by some, you know, aliens that have to deal with a much harsher world than we do. So he's got finely honed instincts. And originally these stories showed up in the 40s and that alien planet was Mercury and he was on Mars and Venus and, you know, all over our solar system in the sort of sci-fi of the mm -hmm. 40s kind of thing. Uh, and then later in the 70s, she did a, a series of novels and these are the ones I'm most familiar with. I don't know if these are like <laughs> in in today's parlance, a reboot <laughs> of the Eric John Stark stories or if... Because in the pulps, you just wrote mm -hmm. and you just sold what you could sell. So this sort of modern conception of continuity, uh, I feel like is a more... Well, I just already said it was a modern mm -hmm. conception. <laughs> like, I, I feel like the desire for continuity and to make sure everything fits in well with the past is... These two series don't necessarily have real connection between them other than they're about the same character and they're written by the same person. Right, yes. The the later series, the Scathe Trilogy, or the, it starts with the Ginger Star, and it's about a planet. Its star is dying. The The whole planet's got some problems with... I don't want to go too much into it because I, this is not what this whole thing is about. But the main thing is that the, this planet is filled with all these interesting cultures that want nothing to do with the rest of the universe, but their star is dying, and they're going to need to get off the planet. So a friend of Eric John Stark, he works for the interstellar federation or whatever they are goes to the planet to say hey we can help you out and gets kidnapped and so <laughs> in comes our hero the man with finely honed instincts that's you know very strong and a very mm -hmm. pulpy hero like and i ate up these books i just love them because they they technically they're alien worlds 
but like spaceships don't show up until the <laughs> third book. There's no ray guns. People have sorceress powers. I think he runs around with a sword most of the time. It's very like sword and sorcery. Just to put it into touch points of mine, because I'm not familiar with the series. Like, so it's more John Carter of Mars, less Conan. Yes, but a lot of Conan too. So here's the thing that I have to say about this. And this is, I'm sort of painting all this stuff with extraordinarily wide mm. brush strokes here, but a lot of the pulp authors wrote in whatever genre they right. could get paid sure, to sure. publish in, right? And so you will see the same style of story. And we've, we've talked a little bit about this in a previous uh, episode. I don't remember. Yeah, in Pastoria Prime Pick, we talked about how like Western fiction, like Westerns and like samurai films kind of have this. Yeah. There, there's a genre of them that kind of has a, a similar an- antecedent kind of story and yeah. even though the trappings are different the, the the core story is pretty similar and that episode kind of followed the same model and so this one i feel like i, I don't want to say like it follows the same model or anything like that but there's definitely more uh, so the rockford moment that we all know and love where rockford stops saying no and starts saying you can't stop me feels definitely mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that genre I'm just wandering through, I have incredible powers, or I'm very skilled, or in the case of Rockford, I'm just (laughs) a really good detective who just can't keep his (laughs) life together. If you keep bugging me, eventually I'm going to turn my eyes on you, and that is not going to be something that you want. It's the kind of reactive protagonist, right? Where it's like, if this story wasn't happening, I would just pass on through. But because someone comes in and pushes me, I push back. That's how I get into the story. Yeah. So there's a lot of other things that come out of these sorts of genres that obviously Rockford is a commentary on detective fiction that has come before Mm -hmm. him. And it's probably not a coincidence that Lee Brackett has wrote screenplays for Raymond Chandler Mm -hmm. novels. (laughs) Who are we going to look to to write for? A Rockford Files episode. We got this brand new series. Like, this is the end of the first season. Mm-hmm. This isn't like they've created a, a name for themselves yet. We want some somebody. Hey, there's Lee Brackett here. I'm assuming this is how this went. <laughs> I am definitely inventing fiction. Yeah, we don't really have, like, the production history uh, under our belts to know how this all went. But one thing that some of our listeners who are more keyed into how these things actually work than we are have told us for some of the episodes we've done. Uh, I'm thinking particularly here of Just by Accident, which uh, is back in the archives and was is not a great episode. And one of the theories about that from, from a listener was that it was probably a, air quotes, detective script that was being shopped around and was going yeah. to be molded to whatever show picked it up. So that's why there are no other fun Rockford characters in it. Like there's no room for them because it's kind of a generic right. solo detective oriented story and doesn't fit the tone of the Rockford files as well as, you know, scripts that were written from the ground up for production. And I buy that argument. I don't know if that's true, but I think that happens, right? Like scripts yeah. get shopped around and then they get turned into their final form for whoever picks them up. I've seen that happen with horror films, mm-hmm. like the, the Hellraiser series. Just putting Hellraiser on it will sell it. So we've got this other horror film. Let's just say that Pinhead's involved and, and, and we'll go from there. And what I think is interesting about that idea with this one is that this story was so stripped down that yeah. if it came into canal 
probably, or Meta Rosenberg, whoever, mm-hmm. if it came into the producer's hands as like, here's a detective story, and they look at it, they're like, okay, like everyone's available that day, right? We can put all the characters in. Like yeah. Angel, as I said in the first part, like Angel doesn't need to be in it for any plot reasons. We just like seeing Angel. Dennis is a cop. It's about the cops. So that makes sense. So it's really just the Rocky Jim relationship that pulls them in together but the actual plot is about starts with kate so you just need someone to have a relationship with kate to get that story started and kate feels to me like that's a lee bracket character like we were talking about before this is the part where we can maybe examine that a little bit and talk about that so one of my loves one of the reasons why i love the pulps is because they do borrow from each other so often mm-hmm. sometimes blatantly uh where you know i've talked about it before where you like turn the corner and there's a gunslinger in the middle of hyboria or whatever mm-hmm. but also by taking this plot and moving it over here but this character of kate who except for in this last scene uh that we see in the show where it's a wonderful sort of comedic thing going mm-hmm. on with her and rocky and jim and dennis she feels like she's living out a different genre yeah than than they are <laughs> and it's good i like it there's something delicious about that and i think that there may be something that we can kind of tease out of that as something to use yeah so one of the things that lee brackett did i guess infamously was write the original empire strikes back script i've read part of that script i loved it i'm not even going to compare it to the to the actual like what she wrote was very true to the inspirations for Star Wars, mm-hmm. uh, if it's not true to Star Wars, which it couldn't be. but And there's a lot of things from her script that ends up in the movie that you now are iconically Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But there's a bit where Luke lands on Bespin uh, or crash lands there or something and has to learn how to fly on the backs of these flying critters so he can get up like oh right Mm. so beautiful and like i said vader and his castle and all this so the point is is what's happening there is that she's throwing sword and sorcery genre at sci-fi and it's sticking in ways that really appeal to me (laughs) it just like in her books they're on alien planets but the stories are very sword and sorcery Mm. but what those are are sort of the aesthetic tropes and there are other tropes like we see here with with kate this more of a dramatic trope right so like you're saying with putting some sword and sorcery into sci-fi when you look at her screenplay credits that's like two other peanut butter chocolate genres right like you have westerns and you have noir films yeah if if you want to learn more about the relationships in American cinema between Westerns and noir, uh, I'm sure there is a cinema studies class near you. <laughs> this is not a groundbreaking theory or anything, yeah. but there's a lot in common. There are a lot of, of tropes that carry through your lone protagonist, you know, your women of ill repute, the, the twisted motivations of, you know, how you get into and then out of these situations and all that kind of stuff, both of which feed directly into the Rockford Files. The P.I. idea kind of grows out of a lot of the noir films. The people who are in Rockford are growing out of Maverick. Yeah. There's uh, just a lot of arrows all kind of pointing in towards the same thing. The thing that is exciting, the thing is that's like, oh, why is this so interesting to talk about to me from this is the idea of saying you don't need to stick a genre necessarily. You don't need to pick one thing and be like, this is a noir, this is a Western, this is a sci-fi, whatever. You can pick and choose your elements out of adjacent things 
And then that's where things start to get their their own character out of, their own yeah. essence out of. The Rockford Files is the Rockford Files because of the combination of influences, not because it's just the next evolution of the PI. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that this kind of nexus of like Lee Brackett is a great place to talk about this is because her work seems to contain all of these different influences right. and then have great outcomes. Um, El Dorado is a great Western. It's not flawless. It's certainly critiquable, but like uh, The Big Sleep is a great noir. Yeah. You know, like these are good touch points for those genres, but she wasn't just doing those genres. That's a lesson that I take to heart of like not having to stay in a genre just because it's something you like or something you do well in, like using that as a launching point to be like, how do I take what I'm good at and bring it into another context and make something new that way? Just as like an executable exercise, right? Like something that you can go and do now. If you look at uh, Kate here and if you think, okay, we've got a Rockford Files episode where Rockford just has fun with family and friends. Mm hmm. It's kind of how I characterize this. <laughs> and then you say, from Kate's point of view, this is a noir. Yeah. Her son has died. Uh, the cops won't investigate. If we followed her around, uh, in fact, even when she's on screen, there's no soundtrack for the beginning part of it, right? Like, it's... it's That very stripped down, kind of ominous feel. Yeah. And if you look at, like, say, the original Star Wars movie, mm. A New Hope, we've got a science fiction action film here, but from Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> and Darth Vader's point of view, they're wizards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're in a sword and sorcery film that can be very fruitful, mm -hmm. right? To just say, I'm going to write a science fiction story or I'm going to write a, a detective story. But this one character it's not that this character has wizard powers, although technically speaking, <laughs> they do in, in Star Wars. But if I wrote it from this character's point of view, which I'm not, this would be this style of genre. Yeah. So let's let that character live in mm -hmm. it and see how that flavors everything. And I think that that would is kind of a neat exercise. And there are some other episodes that do this with their characters and hopefully we'll do some of them soon. But one that comes to yeah. mind is from season four. And it's called the mayor's committee from Deer Lick Falls. And this is the one where these Midwestern businessmen come to L.A. and hire Rockford to do a thing but it's kind of a cover because what they really want is they want a hitman there's a, a young woman who's in la that they want to they want to kill and a lot of the episode is from their perspective and their mm -hmm. various opinions on what they're doing but they behave like they are in like a crime thriller right it's not even really noir though it's a little noir-ish but they behave like they've seen people behave on tv when yeah, they're doing yeah. this kind of thing. And a lot of it is Rockford rolling his eyes and being like, did you really just say that? People don't actually behave <laughs> this way in real life. So they're in one genre, right? And he's in his own um, and their clash is what creates the drama. Yeah. And that's an interesting technique because I think you, you want it to be something where the things blend, right? Like you don't want two things right. that are just going to crash into each other and make the reader go like, what am I even reading? Right, right. You want to find the interesting parts where that blends too, right? In the episode we just saw, Kate grounds everything, right? They, they come to some points where they're like, how do we go forward with this information? And she comes out with this very well thought out, stark morality about mm -hmm. what's going on. Like, I love my son no matter what my son was up to. We just need to know the truth. Yeah, that's an element from that kind of character that works yeah. in the Rockford Files. 
Exactly, yeah. And it's fun because it pushes it forward in a way that, like, if it was another type of character, if it was a more Rockford files character, they may back down or refuse to believe something bad of their, their son. I think this episode does a really good job of being an assemblage of parts that all work well together. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the Rockford Files episodes that we really love have this like cohesiveness to them where they everything leads to another thing and there's callbacks and that kind of stuff. This episode does that on the script level. Right. But it's also easily separable in a way that others aren't. And I think it's, you know, testament to all the elements, the direction, the actors and the script yeah. that they actually work and they don't just feel like they're just sitting next to each other. And I'm thinking here of both what we've already kind of said about how you can see the Rockford characters just kind of added into this script. But also there's an element that at the end of it, I was thinking, and let me know if you agree, that this is one of the few Rockford Files episodes where if Jim didn't get involved the story would have happened the same way. Right, yeah. You wouldn't have had closure for Kate. like, And that's what we mm-hmm. care about because we care about these characters. But in terms of the undercover operation, the crooked cop turning and go- becoming a plant and then busting the crooks, Rockford did not need to be involved for any of that to go down the way it did. Yeah, he may have even put it in danger. More specifically, if Rocky didn't get involved. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the fun bits is thinking of Rocky as starting this episode in a noir film (laughs) and then being like, my Jimmy can take care of it. Yeah. Um, I think you're right, and you're not implying this, but for the record, it doesn't detract from the story at all. Like, it's perfectly fine. What I wanted to pull out from that was was an idea of using this straightforward story as the chassis. Right. It's the train that you're yeah, on. Yeah, of your story. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with saying, this is the story that is being told, but then right. how do you turn it into your own thing by going to other genres, bringing in the characters that you feel very strongly about? And this is mm-hmm. good for games, right? Where you can take this basic idea and be like, here's the story that's going to happen. Here are these characters that are opposed to each other. Here's the lead-in for our characters. Someone needs yeah. to know this woman you know, have a positive relationship with her. Her plight is constructed to bring in Rockford, right? Her being suspicious about her son's death is something that Rockford can come into. Right. That's what he can, what he can do. You know, and then they're off to the races and all of the side characters that are part of the, the plot, uh, the, the cops and the, and Maury and the, and the bad guys, they're all doing stuff in the background while Rockford's doing his thing. So there's always a point for him to maybe intercept or maybe bounce off of, or maybe, he gets snowed by they're not just sitting there waiting for rockford to show up right yeah he doesn't bust it wide open which is right like what would normally happen with a show where the cops are like stop investigating i i've seen that done a little poorly and i'm uh, that's a thing that's worth thinking about like how is it done well and how is it done poorly i think one of the reasons why it, it works here is because we do have kate's desire to see the truth as mm-hmm. the the main thrust like it's not whether or not somebody is brought to justice mm-hmm. The, the stakes of this story are, will Kate find out the truth? Yeah. Her son is already dead. Yeah, no one's under physical threat until, like, Rockford is abducted at the end. So what's in play is the truth, specifically whether or not Kate will ever find out the truth. Because the cops may know the truth from the beginning of the story, or very early on. But the story's not from their perspective, right? Like, this would be a different story if it was from their perspective. That's another genre, right? Where it's like, uh, 
a cop drama, right? Where you're trying yeah. to keep keep people guessing about who knows what until you can make the big the big sting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Choosing the point of view of the story here is important. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the point of view character, because it's clearly Rockford for most of this, but it's what is your story aimed at? Mm-hmm. You know, not not the end point, but the sort of central question that you're going to try and resolve by the end. Particularly if you're writing something of genre, that, like this kind of genre. Yeah, because other episodes play with that question a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Is Jim going to be able to get Dennis off the hook, right, in the Farnsworth stratagem? Is Beth going to realize what Dave is really after in right. Portrait of Elizabeth? Or what is Beth going to do once she realizes, right? That's kind of a, a core question there. The dramatic question is not necessarily yeah. about are they going to find the murderer? Are they going to find the money? It's more about which character is going to have what outcome or what choice is which character going to make. How far down can Angel drag Rockford? (laughs) (laughs) So I had one other bit that we can kind of learn from here. I'm ready to learn. This has to do with Rocky and Kate and Rockford. Uh, And this is about how we use pressures. One of our favorite things. Yes. (laughs) And this plays out in real life all the time, too. And it's something that we kind of all know about. You have someone who's very close to you. Maybe they're a spouse or a sibling or, you know, a parent. And because you're close, that person treats somebody further away from them, better than they treat you. Mm-hmm. Because they have come to rely on you in the same way you've come to rely on them. And then they think, oh, this person needs someone that they can rely on, and I can rely on this other person, so let's just pass it down the line. This episode does a good job of using that as this motivation. Mm-hmm. It's not that Rocky's in trouble. It's that Rocky has he has this assumption that his Jimmy is going to help him out, no matter what. Yeah. So he goes out on a limb for Kate in a way that Jim just wouldn't. Yeah, he doesn't know her. Yeah, and I think that that's a neat pressure to apply there instead of having it come directly because it could have. She could have been an old friend of Rocky's that Jim knew. Right, and she comes to Jim because she knows he's a PI. Exactly. So instead of having the connection directly to Jim, the connection is to somebody who can expect that from Jim, Mm -hmm. but it would be an imposition to do so. And that's great. I think a nice lesson to take from that for playing games is if I'm playing Jim and I have Rocky as this, you know, maybe a a character I came up with or someone else came up with. They're like, oh, okay, that's my dad. Being open to treating your relationship with them like how you would act with a family member into that. I just see situations in games sometimes where it's like, oh, well, this character is asking me to do a thing. They're my character's dad, but like, I don't want to do that thing. So right i'm like no dad i'm not gonna do that and sometimes that doesn't really ring as true to how those dynamics can work yeah i guess i would just say embrace the dynamic that's going to get you sucked into things uh because it it has a lot of resonance with how people work and makes for yeah more more ways to get involved with the story and it it gives you more hooks within that story like okay so you you've gotten someone in but once you've got someone in there's another moving object Mm -hmm. to make it interesting right it's not just jim and kate it's jim rocky right and also rocky trying to figure out his relationship with jim when it's mediated by this relate by the business relationship it's just as interesting as watching jim have to figure out right what he can expect from his dad 
bad. Because we could have fairly said that this episode, it wasn't about finding the truth for Kate, but the episode was about defining Jim's career, Jim's job yeah. for Rocky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's something I didn't think about, but it is it is there in a very yeah. skillful way where it's set up with, they even have the line about Rocky's like, do you understand what I do? And he's like, no. But then once yeah. he hires Jim and he wants to be there every step of the way because he's cheap, but also it's illustrating to him what Jim does. He sees the futility of going to the cops. He sees the bills. He sees what happens to the car. Like, it, it all kind of plays out and he understands a little bit more about what it, what's involved. If it's Rocky thinking, oh, Jim's job is easy or Jim's, mm. you know, like it's just something he could just do for me. By the end of it, he doesn't think that. He literally has a bill of goods that tells you how expensive it was for Jim to do it. But he also has seen Jim go through these trials and tribulations. But then that bill goes straight into the garbage. <laughs> well, that's accounts receivable. That is yet another fun thing about this episode. Thanks for bringing us there. That's a good a good one that I missed. I think I'm I'm all out of things to say about the four pound brick. What about you? There's something I've been I figured out halfway through the episode that I was trying to find an elegant way to say, and I and I don't have it. But we were talking about the gig economy. Uh-huh. And we were talking about how you know people will say, oh, you're just gonna do that for free, or you know you could do that for free, whatever. And it made me appreciate our patrons. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just want to say a big thank you for not being rocky, mm-hmm. for not assuming. Wait, maybe we should just edit that out because that sounds like I'm saying all the other people who aren't our patrons are Rockies. But we love Rocky. We do love Rocky. We understand. We understand. We understand. Hell, we even love angels. (laughs) Well, I will agree with you for sure on this point that our patrons are great. Yeah. And uh, you can become one of them at patreon.com slash 200 a day. All right. Well, I think with all that said, we have earned our 200 for today. We'll go directly into accounts receivable. (laughs) So I guess that just about does it for us, but we will be back to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.